You may be seated. I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. In your pew Bible, it's page 688 or so. We had a conference at the beginning of this month. It was on biblical counseling, and our plenary speaker, Dr. Daniel Berger, dealt with the topic of depression, and Rethinking Depression was the book that he wrote. We have copies in the back. Hopefully, we'll have the audios of those uh, sessions available uh, shortly on the internet for you to listen to. The world of professionals, when it comes to suffering and hurting people, are in disarray as to what's the problem and what's the solution. And our speaker spent time looking at experts in the field of depression and put together these divergent views and said, we need to rethink what depression is, how to face it, how to struggle with it. And as helpful as that was, I think it left us kind of hanging with the now what or the so what. How, how do we unpack that? Now, I've known some of you going on two decades almost. Dr. Berger doesn't have that exposure to you. So I've decided over the next five sermons that I preach to take this subject of suffering, of depression, and unpack it with you to apply to your particular pain, your suffering, the depression that you're facing in your life. The title I gave this series is Lamentations for Today. And uh, today we're going to be looking at suffering and hope. But the subtitle that I would give to the uh, sermon series in Puritan style would be Honestly Facing Suffering and Sorrow in the Light of God's Sovereignty and Steadfast Love. Did you get all that? I hope it will be clear as we go along. We want to answer questions like, when do we lament? I think we lament when something that we, something or someone we love is taken away, as well as when someone or something we dislike is given to us. According to God's eternal decree, His act of providence, He gives and takes away all sorts of things, as Job recognized, but exclaimed, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of all the problems with their cures laid out, where you can just look it up and find this is the problem, this is the cure. What it is, though, is a rich treasury of God's redeeming love for His people. And it gives for us the opportunity to mine out the treasures of truth that help us handle all of life's problems. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so, as we study God's Word, we're going to look at some rich themes because the themes of God's redemption, God rescuing us from the effects of the fall of mankind into sin, our own personal sin, the guilt of that, the condemnation that we feel, all of that salvation will ultimately culminate when we are glorified. But today, we face suffering and pain, and we need God's rich redemption. So, we're going to look at these themes, and this week we're looking at suffering and hope from Lamentations 3. Next, we'll look at suffering and grace from 2 Corinthians 12, 
And then suffering and joy from 1 Peter 1. We'll look at suffering and salvation from Romans 5 and suffering and eternity from 2 Corinthians 4. This is a topical textual series, and when I ran it across uh, Pastor Tony, he said, I think we can only handle five sermons on suffering. (laughs) But I hope you see that there is much hope, grace, joy, salvation, and eternal life for us to face the suffering that is real. Frankly, there's not many sermons out there on Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is not an often preached book. I mean, I did a survey in the first service. How many of you have heard a sermon on Lamentations before? And I only had that one hand in the back. There, you would think if you really understood the book of Lamentations and saw it for what it is, it is a, it's an epic masterpiece of Hebrew poetry. I mean, the way it is, it is structured and put together, it's a beautiful masterpiece of how to speak a, a poetically and beautifully. But the issue is, the content of that poem is so brutally honest, heart-wrenching, and soul-crushing. It's the story of God's people experiencing the, the despair of being in exile in Babylon. Their temple is in ruin. Their city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. Their families are disrupted and divided. They're taken off in chains, in captivity. So much pain, so much suffering that, that we have very little understanding of how, how you could bear such a thing. This may be a problem to our modern ears because it's so often our goal to live happy lives, pain-free lives, and we make it our goal to, at all means possible to avoid discomfort and pain. One pastor I did read who preached on this book made note of the acrostic structure of the book. In the Hebrew text, he said, the book is actually a series of five acrostic poems. Chapters 1 and 2 have 22 verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet with three lines of poetry per letter. Chapter 3, then, is a triple acrostic poem with 66 verses. Chapter 4 has 22 verses with two lines per letter. And chapter 5, there's no acrostic yet. It, too, has 22 verses, each one containing one line. So why, why this acrostic format? He points out a couple objectives that are true. The first is this acrostic actually helps to comfort grieving people. The nature of this acrostic is that it communicates there's a limiting factor. We're going to start with A, but we're going to get to Z. It's going through with an end is in sight. That helps to bring hope in the midst of the suffering. It's not just meaningless, endless judgment and misery. There is an end to be had. The very structure, he goes on to say, also forces us to mourn thoroughly and it's something we resist. When life is hard, we don't want to face the hard questions as to why it might be hard in the first place. We just want to get on with life. We gloss over a situation. We make jokes about it or just a positive spin on it, but the book of Lamentations won't let us do that. By using five individual acrostic poems, Jeremiah forces us to go over the painful story again and again and again and again and again from A to Z of suffering. Don't gloss over the suffering in your life. Don't dismiss it. 
Don't say, well, the ultra-spiritual person would just get over it and tough it out and move on. No, we need to spend some time in lamenting today, honestly, before God. As we approach this scripture, I want to read verses 1 through 33, and we'll deal with uh, the center section in a moment. Follow along as I read Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 1. I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my path crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent His bow and set me as a target for His arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of His quiver. I've become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word to seek to understand what you have said, what you've communicated through the prophet, and how we are to best understand your direction for our lives, lives that are many times overwhelming, all-consuming, distracting in the pain and suffering that we face. Lord, I don't know the individual suffering of every person here, although I know some of what's in their hearts. Lord, I don't know the level of suffering that your prophet Jeremiah went through, but I've seen suffering to some degree. Lord, I pray that we would not compare our suffering with another person's suffering, but that we would learn from you, that we would learn the right way to respond to suffering, and to respond with hope. Lord, we thank you that we have guidance. We're not left on our own, that we have your word to direct us. 
We want to humbly submit, submit to your word this morning. Teach us and teach us to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Christian's hope for suffering is not merely positive thinking, wishful positive thinking that is shallow and glosses over the real and deep pain of life. Christian hope isn't that. Christian hope is based on the character and track, track record of God Almighty. The character and track record of God Almighty is the anchor for our hope. Positive thinking doesn't do it. As we look at this chapter, we see that Jeremiah, 17 times leading up to the verse printed in your bulletin there, leading up to verse 15, we read, He, Him, His, speaking of God, the source, the beginning, the bringer of all the pain and suffering that Jeremiah is facing is God Himself. There's no other way around it. He makes the case again and again and again and again, 17 times leading up to verse 15, where he says three more times, He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. God is the source of His suffering. How does that sit with you? I thought we had a loving God. I thought we had a God who is full of grace. Is God sovereign over all things? Our confession of faith in chapter 3 says that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so is thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Well, that's a mouthful. That's one to get your head around. But let me give you a series of verses that describe the areas of life, the ways in which God is sovereign. He's sovereign over things that even seem random. In Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap. The, 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 the dice is cast. And what seems to be random Every decision is from the Lord. The heart of the most powerful ruler in the land, Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's sovereign over our daily lives and our plans. In Proverbs 20, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Our salvation is grounded in God's sovereignty. In Romans 9, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy 32 says, See now that I, even I am He. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He's sovereign over disabilities in life. In Exodus 4, the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's sovereign over even evil. 
He's not the author of it. He is sovereign over it. The Lord, in Job 1, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, Job says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And Joseph, you remember his story, that God sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God is sovereign over the most wicked, evil act in all history, the crucifixion of Christ. In Acts 2, we read, Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed with the hands of lawless men. God is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Everything. If there is something that God isn't sovereign over, then He's no longer God. He's subservient to that thing. God's absolute sovereignty is undeniable. I've belabored this point, haven't I? I think Jeremiah belabored the point 20 times saying, this is all from God. God did this. God did this. God did this. He needed to remind himself that God is sovereign. And it's a critical point of the foundation of suffering and your response to the problem of suffering that the absolute sovereignty of God is what Jeremiah is confessing and trusting in. He's putting into practice what Ecclesiastes 7, 13, and 14 says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. The good days and the bad days, they're all from God for His purposes, for His glory. Um, That divine decree, that plan that was written before all eternity passed is now being played out in a day-by-day-by-day Um, actions by God, and that's His providence, God working out His sovereign plan. God orders your life and steps moment by moment. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. And from our perspective, we can view God's providence, God's control over all things in different ways. They affect us in different ways. John Murray had a picturesque way of describing this. I I commend to you, uh, Behind a Frowning Providence by John Murray. Excellent. He says, there are favorable, smiling providences, and there are those that appear dark, cross, or frowning providences. These circumstances, I know God's in control of them, but they're hard. They're difficult. And you know, Jeremiah being honest about this, not only honest that he's got hard things in his life, but being honest, I have no other explanation than God is in control of these things, is the foundation. It's the picture of a tapestry. Our lives resemble that tapestry, that beautiful hanging of uh, cloth that the back seems like a tangled mess of strings going everywhere and purposeless threads. But on the front, we see this beautiful picture taking shape. The poem says, Not till the loom is silent 
and the shuttle ceases to fly, shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Dark providences, times of pain and sorrow are part of God's plan to make the beautiful tapestry of your life. He's sovereign over all of our suffering. Jeremiah then calls God out. Look at verse 19 and 20. He calls out to God, telling Him to remember. Verse 19, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, bitter drinks. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. God, I've been recounting these things. I remember them well. Have you forgotten? Would you say that to God? Have you forgotten? I mean, this is the God who calls all things into existence. This is the God who has planned beginning to end. And if we understand God's omniscience properly, we'd have to confess that He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the inside from the outside. He knows the things seen and the things unseen. And we're the ones that are called to call God to remember something. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what he called him to do. Honestly calling out to God with your complaint. Putting words to your feelings of hopelessness. We can do that. God calls us to do that. I thought we were supposed to do all things without complaining or grumbling. At least that's the line I use on my kids every time they complain. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. God doesn't like that. Well, yeah, because the attitude's different in that. The motivation is different. But when we have the right attitude and the understanding of God's sovereignty, we can cry out to God and speak to Him about our sadness, our hurt, our brokenness. And if we don't, we're really out of touch with the world as it really is. You know, that kind of stoicism that just kind of pretends that everything is okay is really out of touch with reality in this broken world. Feelings such as grief and sorrow and sadness today are often diagnosed as disorders when in most situations those feelings are just honest, realistic, and dare I say normal. God wired us to grieve over loss. Jesus did when His friend died. God has made us to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we feel guilt over that and grieve our sin. It's unbiblical to pretend everything is okay. It's vain and deceptive of us to to put on a stiff upper lip, to toughen up, no pain, no gain. That kind of attitude is not being ultra-spiritual. That's really being out of touch with reality, and it's not helpful to anyone. The laments that we see in Scripture, and Lamentations is, is full of it, five chapters of it. We have psalms of lament, lament. We have individual psalms of lament, communal songs of lament. We'll unpack some of those as we go through, but they start with some expression of despair. What is the complaint? What's the problem? And calling God to remembrance because he seems to not be paying attention. He seems not to be listening. And we see explored in these laments, uh, what is the cause of the complaint? What, what or who 
is causing this complaint. Jeremiah gives voice to his trouble, and he, and he spells it out to God. This God who is omniscient, we're forgetful, yet we're calling Him to remember. But we do it because He calls us to. He calls us to come to the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and help in our time of need. He calls us to cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us, to roll our burdens on the Lord and not keep them for ourselves. He desires to hear from us, from His children. He is close to the brokenhearted, and He listens to us in our suffering. Do you know, if you want to get specific, write down your prayers of complaint to God, your laments. Speak them out loud. I think this is useful for a couple reasons. They allow us to hear and think through what's actually going on. They help us to bring definition, clarity, and color and give a little shape to what we're feeling in our hearts. Sometimes that can be just obtuse and, and not defined, but when we, when we can write it out or speak it to the Lord, it starts to take shape and we start to hear words that we find elsewhere in Scripture that we can cross-reference to. They allow us to notice if there's sin and we can confess it if, it's, if necessary. They help us refine and inspect our, our reactions and our responses to the pain and suffer, suffering that we face. Call out God to remember. Write them, speak them. He wants to hear them. But then, verse 21, there's a huge major shift. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope chapter after chapter, verse after verse, the despair, the discouragement, the hopelessness is there. I have no hope. And now in verse 21 of chapter 3, we see, I have hope. Take notice, something important is going on. This is a turning point from hopelessness and despair to hope. So we have to take notice. This is critically important. How does this miserable suffer, sufferer get hope? the first half of the ver this verse, but this I call to mind. That's not passive. That's active. That's doing something. He calls to mind the character and track record of God. And here it is, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You're not a victim of your circumstances. Your feelings are not to be out of control. You are called by God's grace, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, to call to mind these truths. And when we call to mind the character of God and His track record, things change intentionally focus your thoughts, your attention off your situation and on to God's character. His steadfast love never ceases. This word is about kindness, loving kindness. It's cond condescending to the needs of His creatures. It's His covenant love for His people that endures forever. It's a secure love. It's a steadfast love. His mercies are new 
every morning. They never come to an end. This mercy is tender love, great tender mercy, pity. In light of what we deserve, because of our sin, we deserve His wrath and curse. But for Him to give us His mercy is such a comfort. And that He doesn't just give us His mercy once, and then it's all over. Because I sinned yesterday and today, and I'll sin tomorrow. So I need those new mercies every morning, not just once and done. He promises that. It's His character that His mercies are new every morning. You, by rights, should have woken up dead as a doornail because of our sin. But He woke you up with breath in your lungs. You've seen another day. That's His mercy new every morning. We are to see His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. This word literally means firmness, steadiness, stability, trustworthiness, fidelity. Remember, Jeremiah is in the worst circumstances you can imagine. He's in exile. He is suffering. He's a prisoner. It would be as if somebody stood up in the middle of a concentration camp and said, God is faithful. What? Look around you. Look at how terrible this is. How can you say that about God? You can. When you call to mind what He says about His character, and you see His faithful track record, it doesn't matter how you feel about the circumstances you're in. This is who He is, and this is how He will always be. At some point, we need to stop telling God about how great our pain, how great our suffering is, and start to, as one person said, tell your suffering and pain how great your God is, how steadfast His love is, how merciful and kind He is to you, how faithful He is. When you call to mind that reality about His character and His track record, suffering starts to take shape. And then, to top it off, in verse 24, He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. This is the bedrock again. This is the key. When you see hope being restored again, you better ask, why? Where where, where is he getting the hope from? Therefore, what's it there for? I will hope in him. I will hope in him who is my portion. This is what he speaks to his soul. This is his internal dialogue. This is what he's saying to himself. The Lord is my portion. What does that mean? Eleven out of the twelve tribes in Israel were given land allotments, portions of land in the promised land in Canaan where they would be assigned, they'd grow their crops, they'd graze their sheep. That's where they would get their food, their livelihood. That's where they would be sustained. But that one tribe, the Levites, were not given a portion. They were told by God Himself in Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron and, his, and the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. You're going to have to look directly to me to provide for you. And if today you're in the midst of suffering, We need to look to Him directly. He's your portion. 
He's the one ultimately who is going to help you. We can be so satisfied and fully supplied from other things and other people, but that doesn't hold fast. We're not looking for hope in toughing it out or not hope in a change of circumstances, not hope in hitting the lottery. I don't want to be hoping in getting a new girlfriend, a new wife, a new school, a new job, a new house, a new church. That'll take care of my suffering. We're not placing hope in finding the right doctor, the right medicine, the right procedure, the right therapy, the right diet, the right lawyer, the right judge. These may be secondary causes, human instruments that God makes use of, but ultimately and finally, God has to be your portion. He has to be the one that you're hoping in. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer from His holy heaven with saving might of His right hand. This is the God we can hope in because He's our portion. Jesus is the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. It was God's sovereign plan that He would be, by His foreknowledge, delivered up and crucified on our behalf to solve the sin problem, the greatest suffering problem that we face. We're called to hope in the man of sorrows who God called to in desperate lament, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If it was proper for Jesus, the Son of God, to lament, it's proper for us to. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from men who hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. In Isaiah 53, we have a mirror of what's gone on in Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah laments, he's brought this grief, he's brought this grief, he's brought this sorrow, he's brought this pain. And in Isaiah 53, the he is Jesus. He has borne it, he has suffered, he has died. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. Even though he knew it was God's sovereign plan for him to be called to mind, this, this steadfast truth of God's love his new morning mercies, His faithfulness to save His people. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to gr grief. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. There's hope for sufferers because the one man of sorrows suffered in our place. Is your hope in Jesus Christ today? Are you hoping in Him in the midst of pain? Let's pray together. Father, hard words, difficult words. Often we confess that we have heard in Your law difficult things because Your law seems hard for us to obey and we fall short of keeping it. Lord, You promise us, though, that You are with us to help us to obey You. 
Lord, in your word today, we've heard difficult things because suffering is difficult. Pain and, and hurt is difficult. And yet we find hope. Hope in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We look to Him and we pray that you would give us hope and comfort. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The hymn number 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is based on the verses that we've just covered together here today. Let's stand and sing verses 1 and 2 as the elders come to prepare the table. <laughs>